Welcome to Revive Ministries Podcast. We have a very special guest today. I have been a NAMI Connections peer-to-peer facilitator for a couple of years and recently appointed as a board member and actually secretary of the St. John's Flag of Volusia area. And I felt I want to reach out to the people outside my area who works inside of NAMI. So many emails later, I got connected with Doug Beach. Doug is um, is a chairman of the NAMI FaithNet advisory group. Um, me and him got to talking and I kind of shared with him the idea that I have with my podcast and he really um, sounded very interested and I really wanted him to be showcased on um, on my podcast. He's a, a parent, he has experience being a parent with someone, a loved one who is um, suffering from mental illness and those are usually overlooked when we think about the caregiver. Um, he is also a a president of NAMI San Antonio. He is NAMI family, a family instructor. He leads the family grace. There's so many things he is doing, wonderful things. He does a hope conference held in San Antonio, I believe once a year. And, um, and also uh, all these things will be part of the notes, but I would just want to share with you that, you know, this is, you know, me being a faith leader myself, I just found this encouraging that there's some other people out there trying to reach out on the faith side of things and trying to bring mental health into our churches and to have a more um, balanced approach to it. Welcome, Doug. Thank you for taking your time to sharing your story with us. Thank you for asking. A lot of times I'd like to start off my, uh, my, uh, my podcast, our episodes with a quote. And the quote that I felt really appropriate with our episode today is this one quote. I don't know who actually said it. It's an unknown person, but it says, a community that excludes even one member in is no community at all. Um, that's, that's pretty straightforward, right to the point. And, you know, it's just kind of us, them mentality that I feel is very toxic in any environment. Um, and being a peer myself and being having family members who are who have suffered or who are still suffering who are still on this journey of recovery i can really sympathize and empathize of this idea of really being shut out being marginalized being looked over i want to ask um, um being a parent or being a parent of a family member who is suffering from mental illness is often overlooked like i said what was the most important lesson as a parent that you that a parent of one struggling that you've that you realized that stood out to you and, and as a shortest way uh, at the shortest way you could put it in a few sentences uh, maybe in a sentence how would you say your number one lesson that you stood out being a parent of someone suffering from mental illness who's recovering what would that be doug well i think it's, it's uh, easy for me to to uh, say that being in relationship staying in relationship with your family member mm-hmm. and uh, learning how to really listen. I mean, that's, that's really the key. Mm-hmm. Everything develops from that. No relationship, you, you know, it's going to be tough to really be a part of your family member's life. If you don't learn how to listen and listen well, mm-hmm. uh, then you never really hear uh, the person. And in NAMI, we often talk about uh, needing to learn to see the person and not just the symptoms of the illness. Yes. You know, um, one of the, when we do the group guidelines, I think I remember, I think it's principle of support. They say that um, um, no, uh, don't look at anyone else's problems as less than your own. Well, you know what I mean? This idea of, you know, really creating a safe place, you know, a safe space. You know, we have, we're outside, we go through life, and a lot of times doesn't feel it's very safe. And when I'm not talking about just like physical or someone being violent with us, I'm talking about emotionally, being able to be open emotionally. And you're talking about being able to listen. I love that idea of listening because listening, without listening, you can't really have a really effective relationship. Uh, you're right. And I think that, you know, again, one of the things that we often learn is that sometimes uh, if your family member has one of the symptoms might be uh, delusions or paranoia or, and what, what we learn early on is that that may sound irrational to us, 
<clears throat> but for the person who's experiencing that, it's real. Yeah. And to not acknowledge that uh, is to minimize uh, that person and, and their feelings. So that's part of what I'm talking about, listening and, and doing active listening uh, yeah. and being respectful uh, of, of your family member. Yeah, it's really interesting because the thing is, you know, I've done some some groups in this throughout the groups one of the things that really really sticks out to me um i've I've been reading this book i i believe the author is um um, his name is uh, victor frankel and one of his book was uh is the man's uh, man's search for meaning and one of the things he emphasized is that those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how it's from an experience like the why in life and so so what the emphasis i'm trying to get at is that finding meaning in recovery is so important whatever that is we like you said we do not minimize and we do not but the thing is everyone's situation is different some people like being a leader i realized that someone's good news could be someone's bad news i remember this one i was at a church this one guy said um he was there and he saw a woman praising god because uh her mom beat cancer while another woman runs out crying and she's like what happened she's like a month ago my mom had cancer and she didn't make it you know what i mean so the thing is there's there's so much context and you know us being effective listeners as 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 peers as caregivers is hugely important when it comes to helping support someone in recovery oh you're right you talk about finding meaning. I mean, everybody wants to have uh, a purposeful existence and a purposeful life. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, one of the things I've seen over and over is that uh, somebody who does find what they would like to do and they, and they're, they're able to do that. uh, It, it not only gives meaning, but it gives some joy to their life and it helps them. And I think inclusiveness is a big part of, uh, Finding meaning, uh, yes. being included in the community is a big deal. Uh, yes, and I think that, that through interaction, and that's why I'm so big on community because I think that when people uh, are able to interact and be included, uh, they just do better. Uh, yeah, they get better. Uh, they are better. So, uh, one of the things we've worked on. Um, in San Antonio more is this whole idea of inclusiveness and uh, what that means. Um, and I think it's as we've delved into that and we've uh, worked with a professor at Temple University on this who works on inclusion of people living with a disability. Uh, it's helped us, you know, really think through kind of in a lot more depth uh, how to be inclusive and what that means. It's, it's really important. So meaning is important, but also being a part of the community is a big deal. Yes, because we're not islands, right? We do. Right. We right. cannot function. We could. We have that thick skin. We could say we're introverts, but really, we need people. We need each other. Relationships matter, and the closer you get to someone, the more risk it is. Let's just be honest. The more you be vulnerable, but the wonderful thing is the. The things I find being a leader and being seeing, you know, going to a couple funerals and being at people who are about to die is that they never talk about their title. They never talk about the things they own. They talk about the connections, the relationships they had throughout their lives. That's it. So that's very important when I think about this idea of community, you know, because it's very important. You know, when we talk about recovery, because everyone plays a part. Yeah, everyone plays a part. So I think one of the things that uh, we see in NAMI, because we, we do spend some time in our classes mm-hmm. uh, studying brain science, mm-hmm. and one of the things that you learn is that as people become more engaged, uh, it's actually a, a healthy brain exercise. Yeah. Uh, and being engaged and included also leads to other things like gratitude uh, mm-hmm. and feelings of. Um, uh, being part of the community and with gratitude and with thankfulness, uh, it is actually stimulates uh, healing, mm-hmm. uh, lengthens the telomeres, 
And so that some of these practices that we sometimes I think kind of take for granted, they're really very, very healthy exercises and practices that everybody should practice. But, uh, and you know, I think that leads me to one point, which is too oftentimes we, we, uh, we emphasize the differences between people. Yes. Uh, so-and-so has a depression. So-and-so doesn't have depression. When in reality, uh, we have a lot more in common um, when we know, when you learn the statistics of, of mental health issues, mm-hmm. uh, we talk about one in five people will experience mental health disorder this year, but over a lifetime, that's actually about almost 50%. So yeah. that means half the people will experience uh, something in their life that is uh, a mental health disorder. Uh, for some of those people, it becomes chronic, mm-hmm. but what it really means is that we all either have had do have, uh, know of somebody um, in our family or in our community that is dealing with a mental health issue. So uh, these are issues that affect all of us. Exactly. But Doug, um, I love the title. You know, you gave me a working title, but I like it and we're keeping it. Bringing faith and community to the (laughs) mental health. You know, that's one of the things. Community is the emphasis that we all play a part. Thank you for being willing to share your story with us today. So without further delay, can you please share with everyone listening your story of recovery as a caregiver? Sure. I think in about uh, really uh, probably a little over 20 years ago, one of our sons uh, really began to exhibit symptoms of, well, he had behaviors that we didn't recognize. Yeah, uh, it, we did. We didn't know what that was, and so as uh, as oftentimes as a family member or a parent, you look at that and you you know you're kind of like scratching your head, and then it becomes there may be other things that crop up, and then it it becomes if it if it's untreated, it typically becomes um, more pronounced. Yeah, and that's what happened. And I think in our, in our son's case. Uh, after he graduated from college, he went overseas uh, on a, a program for about a year and came back and was really in, in a very deep state of depression. Yeah. And he'd had a break while he was gone. And we, so when he came home and we saw that, um, we, again, didn't know how to interpret that, didn't know what that was. Uh, as he began to... Um, try to kind of get on with his life. Uh, we were reading more and more. And then at one point, uh, he left uh, our home and left uh, the city for really a while, almost two years. And while he was gone, we went to see several psychiatrists to try to get a better understanding. Um, and both psychiatrists gave us a very similar diagnosis, uh, schizoaffective, mm-hmm. uh, and probably depression and anxiety and paranoia so it gave us for the first time kind of gave us a name to that and a friend of ours said you need to find NAMI and we looked that up we didn't know anything about NAMI we found out there was a class we went to a family to family class and it was like the first time we were anywhere where what they were telling us made sense yeah. And it began, and it was under, it was helped us develop an understanding, not just of the illness, but of what, and not just of what our son was experiencing, but what we were experiencing. Yeah. And what it gave us was it gave us tools to be able to uh, begin to uh, help support, uh, be supportive uh, of our son. And, and so that when he did return almost two years later, we were in a much better place, able to really be uh, much, um, you know, much better at trying to create a supportive environment and, and uh, how to communicate and a better understanding of, of what issues he was going through. And I think one of the things that I, one of the um, things that I came to to appreciate was I began to appreciate how difficult it is to actually live with symptoms of a mental illness yeah 
And I went from wondering why he couldn't get up out of bed and go get a job to, which is a very common reaction on the part of parents, mm -hmm. to being amazed at how he was able to cope and go through each day. Yeah. So I think that that's, uh, uh, and that's kind of the beginning of learning to see and appreciate uh, what somebody else is going through, being, being more empathetic. Yes. Uh, and that was a sea change uh, for us. So, and that's what NAMI, one of the many things that NAMI really helped us with. You know, so, um, let me, I'll fast forward to today. So we've been, you know, through many ups and downs, through many, uh, it's just, it's been a roller coaster ride. But in the last three years, uh, our son, who's now uh, early 40s, uh, found one of his interests was travel and languages and today he's teaching uh, English as a second language overseas mm -hmm. doing extremely well and mm -hmm. probably the best adjusted that he's been in his adult life and doing the best that he's been done in his adult life and so I think you know people need to we often in our small groups I tell people you know you you shouldn't give up hope yeah uh, we know that 80 to 90 percent of people living with a mental health issue uh, typically get better. They they, in, they get into, as you called it, recovery, and they have a lot of resilience. Uh, we just don't know when that's going to be or how long it's going to take or what the form is. And so I think that's where the patience comes in, but that's also where uh, faith comes in, and you have to be hopeful and faithful through this whole process and if you are and if you get educated and if you can be supportive uh, of your family member I would say the outcomes are typically uh, your family member gets to a much much better place it doesn't mean they're going to be the same the person that you uh, have, have that they've met the aspirations you had for them when they were you know 12 years old or something. Mm -hmm. But I think for most families, they would say their family member in recovery is is in a much better place than where they were three, four, five, six, seven, ten 10 years ago. Uh, I see that over and over. It's, it, to use an overused phrase sometimes, it's kind of the new normal. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a new reality. It's a new place. We didn't expect to be there. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Uh, there is so much uh, growth that comes through dealing with um, some of these challenges that life has for you. Yeah. There's a lot of growth, they call it post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And it's true not only for a person living with uh, a mental illness, but it's also true for all those people around them too. Yeah, you know, this idea that we learn more from our failures than our successes or our trials and tribulations than our successes is very true i you know you talked about hope there's one quote it's actually on my website i love using this time and time again it says may your choices reflect your hopes not your fears it's from nelson mandela i just love there's a lot of context and you can go as deep as you want with that you know me being a person of faith there's a lot of context to that and there's a lot of meaning for that but Anyone can appreciate us making choices out of hope versus fear because you make choices out of fear, you start boxing yourself in the corner, you start limiting yourself. You know, I do groups, and one of the things that I, um, I asked in one of my holistic recovery groups is this: um, um, what, you know, what do you think you've lost, or what did you not get when you, what did you not get that you expected or desired to have? It's a very, you can peel that as much as you can. You know, you're talking about, you know, expectations when your, your kid was 12. You know, the thing is, one thing that's beautiful that I've become to realize is the idea that my value does not hinge on me performing 100%, me being a peer. You know, I'm Robert. You know, my value doesn't hinge on me not making a mistake. You know, that's a beautiful thing when you find that value because what happens when you have, when you have a mental illness and you, you find either yourself or someone you love, it feels like you lost something. You know what I mean? You've lost right. something. But at the same time, what I'm beginning, what I'm hearing in your story is that you're beginning to see the value. Because the thing is, 
we put a lot of value in a lot of things, but what really is the value is the person and the connection and the relationship you have with them. You know what I mean? So, yes. so I just, I just, I just love that kind of parallel that, you know, idea of recovery in mental health or substance abuse or anything is that we never say we made it, but we continue journeying on. We might stumble, but we continue moving on. This one, this one, um, quote i know i'm using quotes but i love this quote it's from a same guy um it says this it says um i learned that courage was not the absence of fear but the triumph over it the brave man is not he who does not feel afraid but he who conquers that fear it's amazing how how, like we are gonna feel the feelings you just said that the trials and tribulations was the biggest growth sometimes we try to run away from that and try to minimize situations but really we're missing an opportunity of growth and that's what i'm hearing yeah and uh, one of the things that uh, because i i work with uh, a lot of different nami family classes uh, in our city Mm -hmm. and one of the things i uh caution people about is i said you know you've you've lived most of you are, are in these classes because you've had a crisis in your family Mm -hmm. Uh, And most of us get so used to expecting uh, the other shoe to fall. We've been there. It's, you know, in some cases you've had your family member in jail. You've had them, uh, you know, experience substance abuse. You've had them, uh, you know, through all all kinds of unfortunate things. Mm -hmm. So you get, you you get kind of this, mentality that you know you're waiting for the other shoe to fall for something bad to happen Mm -hmm. what you need to do is you need to set that aside and instead expect something good to happen be hopeful Mm -hmm. Uh, and instead of looking down look up Mm -hmm. and it's amazing how many good things happen or that we see that happen when we look up when when we're hopeful so it's not just a matter of perspective yeah. But again, when we talk uh, about our own experiences in our family groups, um, and I ask people to, well, for example, I ask people to tell me what they're grateful for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of us, you know, in some cases, people come to our group and, you know, they've had a bad week, they've had a, a bad day or two, and they're really down. Yeah. And so when we go through this exercise of saying, find something grateful to, or something to be grateful for, at first the response is, are you kidding me? You know what I've just been through? Yeah. But as we talk through this and as we listen to each other, people all of a sudden, oh yeah, I did get that. My, my son got that appointment at the doctor that we've been waiting for mm-hmm. uh, and we didn't know that we were going to get it. Or, you know, my, my family member got the call back on a job. I mean, there are things that we're grateful for, but unless we're willing to kind of, again, look up and be expectant, expect good things to happen, unless you have that mentality, you don't see them. You don't even acknowledge them. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a frame of mind. It's a way of looking at the world. And yes, sometimes we get beat down and, <clears throat> and sometimes we have to overcome issues and obstacles. But if we adopt the view that, uh, that I have things to be grateful for in my life and let me list them, uh, it changes people's perspective. And again, it's also tied to brain science. Gratitude is, and being grateful is one of those healing uh, uh, things in our brain. Yeah. It changes our brain chemistry. Yeah. You know, gratitude is something that I, I try, I adopt in my own recovery because the thing is, it is healing. You know, the same concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Yeah. A lot of people think you need a, you need two people to forgive. All you need is yourself. You know, the <laughs> yeah, the thing is, you the other person, um, the reconciliation is yeah desired, but forgiveness is really you're not you're not. Um, you're not saying that what they did to you is right, but you're kind of, you're allowing yourself to heal. You know, this, this whole thing is a lot about healing and the idea of us being better, whether peers, caretakers, well, family, and 
so forth. Yeah, we were we were visiting with our son about 10 years ago. We hadn't seen him or we, we had no idea where he was and he contacted us and we said, can we come see you? We'd like to visit you. So he, he finally, uh, he needed some financial help. So he's, uh, he said, sure. And so we went uh, out to visit him and we found him uh, in the best shape that we had seen him in, in in years he was doing well mm -hmm. uh and finally as we were just kind of visiting with him i said you know we've tried to reach out to you we've tried to contact you uh, why didn't you return why didn't you call us why didn't you return you know an email or or uh get in touch with us and he said you know i didn't love myself and I didn't think anybody else could either. Yeah. That was a pretty profound statement on his part. Yeah. But it goes to what you're saying. I mean, I think that we <laughs> we have to be able to uh, forgive ourselves and to realize that um, you know we have a lot of self worth. And I think one thing that sometimes when you're not feeling well, when you have depression, when you have um, bipolar disorder you think I'm just not lovable you know yeah. I've screwed up I've, I've really messed up my life mm -hmm. and I don't think that I'm worthy and I think that that's kind of a uh, the point at which friends or family or other people that's the time you just listen yes you just let somebody talk exactly. and you show and it's that care and the compassion and we don't have to say a lot no. but just that act of listening is shows so much respect and without feeling like we have to jump in and explain things and um it's not sometimes it's not what we say it's just the it's just our presence yeah practicing the presence uh of being there and uh I also work with Pathways to Promise, which is a national interfaith ministry, mental health ministry. And we have a new program called Companionship, and that's walking side by side with somebody mm -hmm. uh, and just being in relationship. So that goes back to the relationship that I mentioned in the first mm -hmm. um, podcast. That's key to anybody's uh, feeling of self worth. Yes. That is very important. You know, the idea that um, when um, being present, you know, the idea is like, and that's going to stem to another question I have later, but the idea that, um, you know, how many people in this world, a lot of groups I do, a lot of, a lot of things I hear is that they, they just feel that they're not heard. Just mm -hmm. not heard. That's systemically the, one of the biggest things that they're not heard. Yeah, they'll may say a lot of different words, a lot of different things, but the fact of the matter is they're just not heard. That's it. And if you're willing and you're a family member or a friend or some sort of support, listening, just being there, being present is very, very much healing for them. So, um, For all of us. Yeah, for all of us. But, you know, I have a question. Um, your 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 platform is one of faith. You know, obviously you do FaithNet. Being a leader myself in the faith community, how do you see communities of faith effectively work together regarding mental health? I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And it's actually, it's uh, one of the things that <clears throat> we were uh, mm -hmm. working on a lot in San Antonio and I know other communities are. So we have a group in uh, the, the, the city of San Antonio, the city government, mm -hmm. uh, opened an office of um, faith-based initiatives. And so one of the things that, uh, we've done is, is to work with the city as they begin to reach out to communities of faith and uh, invite them uh, to come together and to address uh, community issues. And one of those is mental health. Mm -hmm. And so what we've seen is that uh, and we, we've done several projects here, one of which is to map um, the faith communities in San Antonio that have one of these ministries, and, and, uh, and especially in the mental health area. And what we found was that there are people all over the community that have 
come to our conference, for example, or are doing something in mental health. The other, the other thing that uh, we've seen that works uh, as a strategy mm-hmm. for working in community is to help is to find clusters. Mm-hmm. So, churches that, for example, have a geographic uh, proximity to each other. If they can cluster together uh, to to in effect complement each other in the programs that they run, there that becomes pretty effective. Uh, one of the things that uh, in fact we were meeting this week, um, looking at a model that St. Louis has done, is called the Behavioral Health Network and Bridges of Care. So uh, Memphis has another uh, program. It's called the Memphis Model. And what Memphis found, for example, when they looked at their own community was that they realized one of their assets was they, I think, probably had more churches per capita than any other city uh, in the country. And they said, well, let's use that as an asset uh, in in dealing with mental health. And so they've begun um, uh, a training program to educate people in congregations about uh mental health and mental illness. Uh, they've uh, established people who are champions uh, within the churches so that they can be uh, contact points for people in their community. Uh, and they've established relationships with mental health care providers. So now you have a grassroots network of uh, churches, congregations, and they, they're in partnership with the health care providers. Mm. Um, St. Louis has done the same thing, and there's there's some other cities that have done a, a good job of this. But I think that what we find in the mental health arena is we often find uh, a lack of a network, a lack of connectivity. Yeah. So we often talk, so, you know, when we talk about the mental health care system, mm-hmm. uh, we have to remind people that it's not a system. There's not a mental health care system. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of disconnected dots. And the hard thing for families and individuals dealing with mental health is finding out how to connect those dots. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes we call them navigators, people who can navigate you through the maze that you have in most communities. And that is one thing that NAMI, I think, does a a good job at. We, We become that... Uh, part of that network to help refer people to where they can get help. Um, but this is one of the things that uh, when we talk about a community of faith and how can they be helpful, I think that this is one of the uh, areas uh, that is gathering clusters of uh, congregations together, helping them get educated, identifying champions and connecting them uh, with mental health care providers so that we now have a community network. I really, I really like that concept. You know, I've been to many meetings and what I find is a lot of silo effect. You got, you know, yes. you got like, treat, they're doing a good job here, but then you have duplication of the same thing. They're not working conducively together because you, the last thing you want is that people to fall through the gra- gaps. You know what I mean? So what we started in 2000, uh, 2016 uh-huh. with Pathways to Hope was I began by um, feeling like until we got everybody in the room together in our community, uh-huh. we weren't going to have this conversation. We were going to continue to exist in silos, talking in our silo, but not, not to each other. Uh-huh. So we started the Pathways to Hope conference to bring uh, to bring families, to bring uh, peers, to bring social agencies, to bring educators, to bring law enforcement, the judiciary, um, mental health uh, practitioners, bring everybody in the same room and have this conversation. Yeah. Because to, and bring people from the faith community. Yeah. I very rarely saw people from the faith community in any of the community meetings that I was going to on mental health. Yeah. So what we try to do is build this bridge. To uh, So we started out purposefully um, with one of our goals being to help build a bridge between the mental health care community and the faith community. And as most people know who are probably listening to this podcast, there has for years, uh, there's been for decades, uh, 
for generations, there's been kind of a mistrust uh, between uh, mental health practitioners and uh, faith community, pastors, yeah. uh, the clergy. And so we knew, or we know, we have research that shows that when people are able to practice, that oftentimes people go to see a pastor, priest, or rabbi first before they go anywhere else when they have a mental health issue. Yeah. And yet 95% of churches, and I say churches, it's really faith communities, 95% of faith communities uh, do not have any kind of mental health support and they don't know where to send people. Yeah. So we have people going to uh, faith communities for help and not getting help, not getting any kind of referral. So we said, you know, this is a natural um, bridge that we can help build. So, but we had to bring both groups together and we had to get mental health practitioners to listen to people of faith who, who would say, yes, I believe in the science of psychiatry and, and, um, and brain science. And, and we had uh, pastors from major churches come to our conference the first year and they would, one of them in particular, leading a very large non-denominational uh, church uh, was able to get up and say, you know, I've been, I have uh, serious depression mm -hmm. and I've lived with depression for the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I pray a lot, but I also need know I need to take my medication. Yeah. And when I take my medication and I, and, uh, and the other things in my life are in balance, I do well, I do fine. Yeah. But I'm not going to tell somebody that if if they need medication, don't take that medication because it shows that you don't have enough faith. So we had that discussion from the faith community side, and then we had psychiatrists come up who said people who are able to practice their faith and have, have a faith actually do better in recovery than uh, people who don't have a faith. And there's thousands of research studies now that show that. So we were able to talk about this on a stage with, uh, you know, over a thousand people in the audience. And I heard pastors say, wow, this is the first time I've, I've heard psychiatrists say that uh, clergy uh, are, can do a good job. And vice versa, uh, we had mental health professionals saying, well, I guess I need to start a new conversation with people I know in the clergy. So that's the kind of bridge building and that's the kind of community conversation that needs to take place in most communities and that helps break down the siloing. Yeah. So now we're going into the fifth year of our conference. Uh, I would say we have definitely uh, moved the needle in our community and that where, and we, we work with individual churches on helping uh, bring NAMI classes in, helping do mental health first aid by helping do faith-based support groups and so we've had more and more churches open up um, to working with us but the conversation is different we now have churches saying okay now I think I understand better what my role is uh, as a faith community and how I can be supported uh, we're now reaching out to mental health practitioners and we're saying we need to get you in connection with specific congregations and churches. Make yourselves available. We know that access to care is one of the key impediments uh, to people uh, finding help and getting help. So we've all got to work together on this, uh, on this issue. Now let me tie this up and say that uh, when people work together in community, and are, are accepted mm -hmm. and are not ostracized or stigmatized. So when we find that people are, are, are able to live um, in community, they do better, they get better. Yeah. I mean, their, their need for medication, for example, goes down. Mm -hmm. in, in, not in all cases, but in many cases. Yeah. So this whole idea of uh, connecting the community, working together, living in community, being inclusive, um, and being respectful. Mm -hmm. uh, those are all keys to building a healthy environment in, in any city. Yeah, that, that was 
that was great, Doug. I, 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 being a faith leader, and you know, obviously, um, we could talk more. Um, it's just the idea that I have that struggle, that kind of old thinking that if you admit to something, you you haven't. But as as we know, it's kind of this us and them mentality that I try to shatter because in churches and why do people go to pastors and all that stuff or rabbis and in their faith-based places because they feel it's a safe place yeah you know and that's the whole key every single support group i facilitate has to be a safe place because that's where you foster people healing you know they've lost something they in a way they might like lost something tangible like but they might have lost, you know, their confidence. They may have lost their value for themselves. A lot of times that's the case. And, you know, caregivers themselves go through the same process. Everyone plays a part. And I love the kind of how you kind of laid out what you've done in San Antonio. That's 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 really I I kind of want to see that happen in where I'm at, you know, in Florida. That's where I'm at right now. So So uh, I, I think that one of the important things in terms of faith communities and the clergy is educating them to the to to the point where <coughs> excuse me where they can recognize signs and symptoms mm-hmm. so let's say somebody comes goes to a pastor priest or rabbi mm-hmm. and they're having financial problems mm-hmm. and in the past uh, you know one of the first responses would be oh we need to get you into a financial management class yeah but then as you delve deeper, as you ask more questions, you find out that maybe this is more a behavioral issue. Maybe this is a mania, um, and, and which is kind of exhibiting itself through financial uh, issues, spending too much money, running up credit card debt, etc. So I think that one of the important things that uh, clergy uh, can do is become better educated about uh, mental health and then knowing when to refer people out. Yeah. <clears throat> we often, my, go okay. ahead. One of my mental health summits that I did in Florida, um, the whole tagline, the whole hashtag was, an educated community is a stronger community. That's what I'm trying to, because the thing is, honestly, a lot of times, you're not knowing, you know, just putting your head in the sand is not solving a lot of issues you, know, you could minimize as much as you want you could grow that thick skin but really you're missing an opportunity to kind of grow and strengthen our community so that people who are like myself as a peer or someone else who's struggling may find it safe enough to get the help they need because remember in the beginning when you first recognize your having your son was having mental well having issues you know, it's very crucial that he feels that it's safe because, yeah. like, the willingness is such an overlooked thing. But <clears throat> willingness to get treatment is huge. It's, it it well, sometimes it's life, it's life, uh, it's life or death at some points. You know, I've lost many people. So, and and that willingness is important. And I think I reflect back on our own son's experience when he went to a faith-based counseling center that was associated with our church. And it was a it was a disaster. It was dismal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person that was there was was not a good um, therapist, and really failed to diagnose everything. You know, it was just yeah. it was a big missed opportunity because from that point on, uh, it became harder and harder to get our son to see a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another part of you know trying to educate people. And faith communities about what mental health issues are. Yeah, you know, one thing I wanted to point out is like being right, this concept of being right isn't everything as a leader, especially in the platform where that we're talking about. In the line of work when we're dealing with people, <coughs> especially the loved ones, those who are suffering, because building connections, you know, being right is not everything. I think 999 <laughs> percent of the time when there was a conflict in church it was never never solved by me by someone being right it was it was started by someone the dialogue happening having that conversation having that healing whatever conflict it was in the church it was always about 
it was never solved by someone saying I'm right and the other one disagreeing. It never works that way. You know, it's always about connecting and building that relationship because sometimes conflicts can actually be a growing experience towards that individual. And like sometimes, you know, when it comes to being right per se, um, I see as a missed opportunity because a lot of times when you're dealing with topics like mental health and these sensitive topics, it's not about being right. Like we talked about before, it's about listening and about hearing and making them feel safe enough to be willing to get the help that they need. You know what I mean? Where you know, I'm not a professional to give them counsel or give them medication, but I know someone or I know networks with some some clinicians and uh, psychiatrists that they may be able to see. You know, that's more conducive, more helpful than me saying what 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 are they doing wrong. You know, especially when you you know person you gave the example maybe not managing their money right. If a if a leader goes to him or her and it's not tactful and then that person doesn't feel safe even though there's other like like you're suggesting there's other context underneath that that person's not going to feel safe to actually address what's really happening within themselves and it's we have to be really careful about that because i want to ask you a question you know obviously a kind of segue to it how important has it been in your experience in building connection and trust with those suffering versus just being right well, being right really doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it doesn't. I don't. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, because it, it's just it's a non-starter. It's a non-starter. Uh, it it really goes back to what you just mentioned. It goes back to the listening, and it really goes back to uh, being in a relationship with a particular person. Mm-hmm. Let me it, mention one other. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, let me mention another uh, question that comes up a lot. And uh, we, get, we get the question, well, I, I, I have a faith. Uh, I want to go see a Christian counselor. or I want to go see a uh, counselor who is uh, in my faith tradition. Um, and, I mean, there's a, the American uh, Christian Counseling Association, which is a great group. Uh, but one of the answers that we that we've heard <clears throat> and that we give people is, um, in fact, I have a, a friend in Houston, Matt Stanford, Dr. Stanford. He does a good job of illustrating this. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, if you have a, if you're going to have heart surgery, do you want to walk in and, and ask your heart surgeon, are you a Christian? <laughs> yeah. And you know, what you want is you want the most competent. Uh, surgeon that you can get yeah. to do your heart surgery. Yeah. Now you want them to be respectful of your faith, and that's exactly. where we find that's what we need for psychiatrists and for mental health professionals. I don't necessarily need for my counselor or my therapist or my psychiatrist to be a quote-unquote uh, card-carrying Christian or card-carrying person of faith. Yeah. But what I do want is I want them to listen to me to know whether my faith is important to me, to be respectful of that and understand the dynamics there of how my faith may be a big part of my recovery. That's where we want to be. Um, Another aspect of this, and it's something I want to note, is that in teaching the Omni family classes, uh, what we have found uh, over and over in our classes, we have a class in particular that says where we ask people, uh, how do you get to tomorrow? How, how are you going to navigate your way to next week? Mm-hmm. What is it that keeps you going mm-hmm. when many of you are dealing with really, really, really difficult situations? And 90% of the time, people tell us it's their faith. It happens that faith is the way that they get through the week. Mm-hmm. Now, they're doing all the other things. They're getting educated. They're listening better. They're being more empathetic. But yeah. their faith is a big, important part. Yeah. So part of where uh, the disconnect comes, I think, in the mental health community is we don't recognize the role of faith often enough in um, families or individuals that are dealing with mental health issues. That's number one. Number two, we had a workshop 
this past year where uh, we had a big, <laughs> it's a me mental health conference and it was on faith. Mm -hmm. And we asked people in the room and it was a probably over 50%, probably two thirds of the audience uh, were there as peers. Mm -hmm. uh, some were there as mental health professionals, many family members. And we asked them how important their faith was to them and to discuss that and then report back, report out at the end of the break. And the room was a buzz. Mm. It was just, you know, and what we heard at the reporting was uh, the faith was a big, was a big deal for people. Mm. Then yeah. we asked the question, how welcome do you feel in your own in faith in a faith community and how included do you feel mm -hmm. and the room was almost silent mm -hmm. so what it said was faith is a very important part of people's recovery and the way that they navigate their way forward but that they don't always feel very welcome and they don't feel very included in uh, in faith communities that is more of a common denominator that is where we need, that is a big challenge. And that goes back to the question you asked earlier about, well, how do faith communities get involved? How do they um, become educated? How do they become part of this care continuum uh, that we need to have built in our communities? Hmm. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask um, is, as a parent, if another parent or family member who's who is a caregiver is listening right now and really identifies with your story what advice would you give them well uh, I think one of the things that you we we're going to talk about is what other resources are out there where can mm -hmm. people turn yes um, that's probably a good way to segue into this yeah. and I think that today we have more uh, places for people to turn where they're going to feel uh, that there's a response. Mm -hmm. One of the places, Nami FaithNet, uh, we have a website mm -hmm. with a lot of different resources. And if you Google Nami FaithNet, it'll take you to uh, a, a resource page. Okay. And this is Nami's outreach to faith communities to work with faith communities to help them become uh, equipped. Uh, a second source, a really good source, is Mental Health Grace Alliance, and mm. you can Google that. Um, yeah, uh, all the, the you'll yeah, yeah you, um, everything you're sharing right now, we'll I uh, will put in the notes in the podcast, good. so everyone will, everyone listening will have access to it. And so, Mental Health Grace Alliance uh, has excellent uh, materials for both uh, family grace groups and for uh, peers uh, called Living Grace Groups. Mm -hmm. uh, and Joe Padilla and Matt Stanford, who started uh, Grace Alliance, uh, have just excellent resources uh, there. And they, they also have uh, support groups, which you can get training for um, remotely, online, great programs. Mental Health Ministries, which is Reverend Susan Gray Schroeder's website. Mm -hmm. Lots of good uh, materials there. Mm -hmm. Pathways to Promise. Uh, another very good resource, an excellent resource in particular for adolescents and youth is Key Ministry mm -hmm. uh, out of Cleveland, mm -hmm. Dr. Steve Gersovich, a wonderful resource. Okay. So those are some, that, the sources I've given you are, they have more material than most people can go through. But I think that once you go there, you not only find uh, the topics we've been talking about addressed, but they also provide ways to uh, participate um, in, in faith discussions, uh, in support groups. Uh, there are blogs there. Uh, we use their we use material off these websites in our family support group uh, mm -hmm. every week. Okay, and um, I was gonna. I'm just gonna ask you the. The final real question I have that Revive Ministry Podcast is trying to answer as a community of people around the world, which I don't see borders when it comes to these issues, mm -hmm. why should we care? Well, uh, it's a real simple answer because this is us. Yes, yeah. 
I mean, we, <laughs> I gave those statistics earlier, but yeah. no, yeah. this is who we are. Well, this yeah. is part of the human condition. Yeah. And if you, so if you are somebody that has a uh, mental health issue and 50% of people are going to have one during their life, yeah. you know, that's you. If you have a friend, if yeah. you have a loved one, if you, you know, we should, uh, why should we uh, care? Uh, because that's part of what um, this life is all about. The other thing I'll mention is, again, remember the brain science. Yeah. People who care actually, I mean, they're healthier people. Yeah. I mean, their brains, their brains function better. So I, I say, you know, this is the way that God designed us. Yes. This is, he made us this way. In fact, when we care about other people and we heal, mm -hmm. that's the way it's supposed to work. You know, so, you know, you go going the other direction. Why would you want to do that? So I think there are a lot of reasons to care. Um, and last of all is I think it, it gives us hope. Yes. You know, it puts us in a more hopeful place. And hope is, is maybe the single most important thing out of all of this. Yes. Uh, without hope, you have this despair and this kind of, uh, you, you want to give up on life. You know, being up here myself, what I've came to notice, you know, being 15 plus years with mental illness, one thing I've noticed near the end, like now, that serving serving people and obviously mm -hmm. with my faith is serving God but serving people and serving God is my recovery helping people is my healing it's yes. this concept that I really grasped and it really <clears throat> has helped me propel and like you're saying the science is collaborating with that very well and the thing is why should we care because we can't afford not to um, yeah. um, the other thing I want to um, what I want, one other thing I want to address is, you know, thank you, Doug, of course. Thank you for sharing. Can you tell the listeners what you're up to now? Like we're kind of can go into the, I know you shared a little bit, but you know, you shared, you know, all the, all the, all the resources you were, is going to be on there, but anything coming up that you want to share to any listeners, you know, this could, there might be people from, you know, your neck of the woods listening too. So anything you would like to well, share? Um, with them. A couple things. Uh, I, I encourage everybody to go to the websites that I mentioned because they all have uh, things that are going on. One of the things that we'll have going on again this year in San Antonio is our Pathways to Hope conference, which will be August 21st and 22nd. It's free. Mm -hmm. it, this is one of the best uh, conferences in the U.S. Uh, that deals with these subjects. And uh, it's simulcast. It's online. And so you don't even have to leave your comfortable couch in, <laughs> in uh, Cleveland or wherever. Uh, you can tune in. We have people that uh, log on during the conference. So that is coming up this year. Um, and I, I would encourage people to get in touch with their local NAMI chapters, uh, the local affiliates. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, begin to get engaged and involved. I think that one of the most important things people do is they speak up and they tell their story. Uh, yes. Telling stories, speaking up. When you tell your story, you give other people the permission to tell theirs. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we're in a we're in a field mental health in which it sometimes seems overwhelming the need. You know, how how do we address this? And I always like to say it really begins with all, all you have to do, you don't have to save the world, but how about helping one other person? Yes. In your family or a friend. So the most important thing we do every day is we can learn to be, uh, learn to listen, to be in relationship, not to turn away from people and quit listening, uh, but to move, as Kay Warren says, so, so oftentimes, when you tell somebody in church that, you, that you're dealing with a mental health issue in your family, she says too often times in the past people move away. Move closer in the pew. Mm. Draw closer to people. Listen. Yes. Yes. So if we don't learn anything else uh, out of this uh, podcast today, I hope people will lean in and uh, move closer to one another. 
again thank you doug for sharing your story with us and all your insight it's been it's been really really amazing till next time this is goodbye from revive ministry podcast please check out the website for updates for latest episodes and podcasts on revive ministries fl.com i'll leave you with this one quote and i i was going to use another quote but i'm going to use the one i started off with a community that excludes even one member is no community at all.